0: Alright, if you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Genesis, right there at the beginning. Genesis chapter 29. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table. I'd encourage you to get one. We'll have read a a large chunk of scripture this morning. But Genesis and chapter 29. I, I rediscovered an article that I had read in USA Today about a year ago. This is the title, Fugitive Nabbed After 56 Years on the Run um here's how the article begins it says frank freshwater's long run at freedom came to an end with a knock on his door it was then that the gray-bearded man living under the alias of william cox in an old trailer home tucked away in the wildlands just west of melbourne florida stared ahead at an officer with the brevard county sheriff's office game over task force what a name the game over task force Uh, the deputy held up a black-and-white picture of a fresh-faced 23, 23-year-old and asked Cox if he had ever seen the young man. He looked at the picture, told them, I haven't seen him in a long time, said Major Todd Goodyear, spokesman for the sheriff's office. The deputy then asked the question that everyone knew the answer to. Goodyear said, the deputy said to him, it's you, isn't it? And that was it. He's been living the retired life and getting social, social social security benefits, I believed, under his alias. He's been living under that alias for years, 56 years. Can you imagine? 56 years on the run, but justice eventually found him, and he's forced to pay for his crimes. When we last left Jacob... He had just woken up from a vision that he had had of God at the top of this heavenly staircase. It's this vision filled with all of these wonderful words of blessing and of of promise, both in the picture and in the actual words that God speaks to him. The words, the blessing that were on his grandfather Abraham and then on his father Isaac, and now they're being passed on to him. The promise that he would be blessed, that God would be with him, that he would bring him back to this land. And while Jacob's conniving and and deal-making nature was, on full display, even as he tries to negotiate with God there. Uh, He's also moved to fear, and he's given hope by this encounter. And so when we meet him again on his journey this morning, he's continuing forward, and he's he's heading towards uh, his mother's relatives in Haran, and he's doing it with some sort of fresh confidence of of God's presence with him. God's going to lead him. God's going to bless him. The events of, of the days prior of of deceiving his father, of stealing the blessing from his brother, of all this time wandering in the desert for, for alone. They've all sort of faded from his mind, and he's, he's walking with renewed hope, with renewed faith. And we're going to see that he's going to settle in this new land. He's going to be there for seven years, and his sins from the past are probably going to fade from the forefront of his mind. But God has not forgotten what Jacob did. And soon in the midst of God blessing Jacob, he's also going to help Jacob see all the pain that he has caused and all the consequences for his sin, for his rebellion and for his selfishness. God doesn't let Jacob outrun his sin and he doesn't let him get away with not feeling the hurt that he has caused to others. Like those officers that came knocking on Frank Freshwater's door, God sort of comes knocking on Jacob's door and he holds up a picture of Jacob from some seven years prior and says, do you remember this guy? Look at him. And Jacob feels, as it were, all of the pain and all the difficulty that he had caused to his family. This may be disheartening, but if that's what Jacob is learning, then that's what we get to learn this morning. Um, That's what God's teaching us. Namely, that that God will not cease to pursue us with blessing, even while he reveals all the sinful circumstances that we have not settled. Let me say that more simply. Our life as God's children is marked by the simultaneous blessing and discipline of our father. Like any child, I guess, right? Our life is marked... Our life as God's children is marked by the simultaneous blessing and discipline of our Father. Let's see it in Genesis 29. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 30. Genesis 29 begins, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled away, is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, The daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. We'll stop there. Again, our life as God's children is marked by the simultaneous blessing and discipline of our Father. And we're going to see that in this passage sort of just in these two sections. The first part is the blessing and the second part is the discipline. So let's think first about the blessings of our father. And as we do that, I just want to think about three sort of ways that God blesses Jacob and us. And the first would be God leads his children. So we're thinking about the blessings of our father. And the first thing that we see is that God leads his children. So these first three verses, they sort of form a bridge from chapter 28 to this place. But they also set the scene for what's going to happen. So Jacob comes to the land of the people of the east. And then he comes to a well that is sealed over with this large stone that's repeated a lot of times, just right for some sort of great analogy about a large stone being rolled away. But I don't think that has anything to do with what's going on here. Um, but there's this large stone and it's surrounded by three flocks of sheep. The shepherds are there. They're waiting for all the other flocks to arrive so they can be watered together. This was probably some sort of security feature. Uh, to make sure that the water was evenly distributed. Water would have been very valuable. A well would be very important in that day. So they want to make sure the water's not wasted and also that people aren't sort of hoarding that. So they wait till everyone comes and then they all do that together. So Jacob strikes up a conversation with these shepherds. Hey guys, where are you from? They say, we're from Haran. This is the place that Jacob's looking for. He probes a little further. Do you know Laban? Yeah, we know Laban. In fact, look, here comes his daughter Rachel. It all seems very simple, doesn't it? It's something that we've read before, and we know that it's there. But the more you think about it, the more you realize how God is lovingly leading Jacob right to this place. I'm not sure what travel would have been like in those days. Were there, you know, some sort of crude sign that said "this way to Haran"? Probably not. There was no GPS, no turn-by-turn navigation for for Jacob. Um, If he got off course, it didn't say, you know, recalculating. This is the way to go. Uh, He had no uh, estimated time of arrival. He had no GPS. He had no map. He'd never been to this place. So when Jacob says, where are you guys from? And they say, we're from Haran. That's like God saying, I've led you to this place, Jacob. I've been with you and I brought you right where I want you. And if that's not enough, then Rachel comes to the well at that moment, on that day, just a gift from God, a confirmation of the words of chapter 28. I will be with you wherever you go. This promise of God's presence, his protection, his blessing. Some people would call this coincidence, serendipity, uh, fortunate, a fortunate instance of happenstance. It's luck. It's some sort of a fluke. And we don't want to build our lives or our theology around the way that things sort of come together. We want to be careful of that. But at the same time, if we believe in a sovereign God who controls everything in the universe, down to the smallest detail, then doesn't it make sense that he often orchestrates the events in our lives to lead and to encourage us? Doesn't it just make sense? And we've all experienced this in different ways, big ways and small ways. I shared before how Andrew and I when we were when we were moving to Illinois for the first time we were looking for a for an uh, apartment for a condo for a house for just somewhere that we could live and we were at our wit's end and we were praying as we were driving north on Wolf Road and in mid prayer someone was putting a sign out on a balcony the balcony that would become the house that we lived in for the next 4 years. What was that happenstance? Was that coincidence? No, I think that was God sovereignly leading, and it was so encouraging to us to see that happen. Just this past Saturday, we, uh, we purchased an oven that we later realized we didn't need, which is a long story I won't get into. Um, but then we ended up being able to sell it to a uh, to brother in Christ, and we were able to, to bless him with a, a new oven at a, at a good price. Uh, we made most of our money back, and it was just a, a gift. Uh, to be able to do that. Was that just a coincidence? I don't think so. I think that God had a plan in the midst of that. And you have stories like that. And there's stories through church history. When I think about this, I automatically think about George Bueller. If you know anything about his story, a guy who would pray for food and then bread trucks would break outside of the orphanage uh That that he lived in. I mean, what an amazing thing! Or if you've read any missionary biography, they get to a place where they say, "I need I needed 157 dollars," and they pray, and the next day this envelope arrives with the exact amount that they need. God does that. He encourages us with that. God lovingly leads his children. He works in the details of our lives. Sometimes you can't see it very clearly, but sometimes we do. You know, the the search for God's will isn't that something they're always looking for. I think this is the place to begin. I think this is a place to be encouraged. God is our Father. He loves to bless us by leading us. Just just start there. If you're thinking about God's will, know this. He loves you. He loves to lead you. I I mentioned it already, but that sovereignty then causes us to step into situations with great confidence that God is is with us, that he's going to bless us, he's going to lead us, he's going to provide for us. So if we think about the, the blessings of our Father, we think about how he leads us, But secondly, that God's leading emboldens his children. God's leading emboldens his children, gives us courage. So Jacob meets Rachel, and he's overwhelmed by the blessing of God, so much so that he removes this large stone uh, that was covering the well, and he waters all of Rachel's sheep. Adrenaline sort of kicks in after the long journey, and Jacob pushes this stone, and he pushes against all the, the social norms, and he boldly blesses Rachel. I think he does this just out of joy at what he has seen, that God has led into this place. I think he also likes Rachel, and he wants to impress her. <laughs> we find out later that he thinks she's attractive, and so there's probably some of that going on here. He's trying to impress this woman. But again, it seems that God emboldens Jacob because of the way that he has seen him, the way that God has led him. Isn't that true for us, that when we can identify the ways that God is blessing and leading us, that we're, we're given new courage, we're given boldness, and we might take actions that we wouldn't normally take. You know? You're in a conversation with someone, and, and just amazingly it takes this turn towards a spiritual um, vein. It turns towards spiritual things, and you're filled with new boldness because you say, there's no way, this, this doesn't happen in my normal conversations. God has this conversation for a purpose, and I'm going to step into it. Maybe you're put into a leadership position that you weren't seeking and you really didn't even want, but it just sort of came about. And you, you have this, this fresh courage to, to lead in a unique way because you see God's hand. Maybe you just see God's kindness in different ways in your life. He's just blessing you in unique ways. And it, it just, you're filled with a new boldness to, to press in in prayer, or to, to know Him more, to serve Him more. Maybe that's not true. Maybe you've sort of lost boldness in your life or you've lost courage. You're you're discouraged because you failed to see God's leading. I don't know. Maybe it would be good to pause just today or sometime this week and to think, how has God brought you to where he has brought you? Maybe the school that you're at, to look back on that. Think about the job that you're in, the family that you're in, the circle of friends that you have, for some of you, even the country that you now live in, to look back and to say, you know what? God was leading in this. He has brought me to this place. And as hard as life can be, sometimes I, I see his hand and I'm encouraged to keep going forward. So God blesses his children. He blesses as he leads us. He blesses as he emboldens us. And then finally, God gives good gifts to his children. God gives good gifts to his children. Just briefly notice the reception that, that Jacob received. Now, we sort of know the end of the story and exactly who Laban is. But still, in this moment, he's he's overwhelmed by by all that's happened, he has this moment of elation where he, he kisses Rachel, and, and then he just weeps for joy. I think that weeping is a little ironic. Do you remember the last person that wept in the storyline of Jacob? It was Esau. Esau who wept when the when the blessing was taken from him. But we'll see where that comes in. Laban hears this news from Rachel, just just like, remember, when Rebecca had come and told about Abraham's servant back in chapter 24. He runs. He embraces uh, Jacob, he brings him into his home. This is probably the first time that Laban has heard about his sister and her family since a hundred years prior when they sent Rebecca off to go and, and to, to be um, with Isaac. And now Jacob has come to this place. He's traveled for over a month, and he's found a home. He's found a family. It's just a simple thought, but as we think about God's blessing, that's the first place to go to think about the family that we have whether it's blood family or church family or friends you know many people walk through life alone and Jacob had just done that he thinks he's burned all his bridges with his family but God is good God gives Jacob undeservedly this this family before we move on into the second half of the story just kind of note the parallels Chapter 24, if you remember that, where, where Abraham sends his servant out to find a wife for Rebekah, it's so similar to what's going on here. Very interesting. And I think it emphasizes this providence theme. It's more explicit in chapter, chapter 24. Abraham's servant goes and he's praying and, and God blesses him. Uh, and and, and Abraham, Abraham's servant just sort of blesses God and says, Praise God, he's led me, he's prospered my way. In both scenes, there's a well. It might be the exact same well. Um, In in both scenes, we find flocks of sheep. In both scenes, a relative of Laban comes to the well. In both, there's this act of kindness and strength. In the first one, it's Rebecca who waters the servants' camels. In this one, it's Jacob who pushes the stone and then waters all the sheep. Um, And in both, we find the women running and telling Laban the news. And then Laban comes back, and he's very magnanimous. He's very enthusiastic about this whole thing. So just interesting. But unlike chapter 24, the narrative is going to stay here. When Abraham's servant comes and he sees God's blessed his journey, he, the next day, says, bring Rebekah now. We're going back to the land. But but Jacob can't do that, partly because he doesn't have a, a bride price to pay. He's come to get uh, a wife, but he doesn't have the money necessary, which would have been the custom in that day, but also because his brother's hunting him down and wants to kill him. Um, so Laban stays a little while here, and we get to know I'm sorry, Jacob stays a little while here and we get to know Laban. Um, God has led Jacob not only to Rachel, but God has led Jacob to Laban too. Uh, We're going to learn more about him in this circumstance. And so the text moves from the blessings of the Father to the discipline of our Father. Let's think about that, the discipline of our Father. Everything seems pretty normal at first in verse 15. Jacob is there for about a month after he had first arrived. And you might imagine all the stories that were told, all the catching up that happened. You wonder how much did Jacob share? (laughs) What kind of a light did Jacob paint himself in? What stories did he tell and what stories did he choose to not tell? When they said, why did you make this journey? Did he tell them exactly why he was there? I don't know. But after a month, he's sort of assimilated into the family. uh, And Laban tells Jacob that he shouldn't work for nothing. Just because they're related, they shouldn't work for nothing. And so he asked Jacob, "What's, what's your wages? And what's Jacob come for? He's come for a wife. I'll work for a wife. Specifically, he says, I want to marry Rachel, your younger daughter. The description of the two sisters there is in verse 17. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now, I don't know how much we should draw from this. Standards of beauty are different across cultures. Even in the modern day, let alone thousands of years ago, uh, that phrase "Leah's eyes were weak" it, it could also mean she had tender eyes. It doesn't necessarily mean that she was ugly, as people have taken it to mean. Uh, it meant maybe that she didn't have a sparkle in her eye. I read one person that said it might mean that she had blue eyes. So take that. think got blue eyes. Uh, interesting, but whatever reason, for whatever reason, Jacob is attracted to Rachel, just as those of you are attracted to your spouse or whatever reason so he wants to marry Rachel and so Jacob says I'll work 7 years for Rachel probably to pay that bride price again and Laban says let's do it and so Jacob works for 7 years and it says they felt like days because of how much he loved Rachel what a beautiful uh, statement and at the end of those 7 years he comes to Laban and asks but in the asks for he has to he has to ask uh, Laban, he says, "Okay, it's time for you to give me my wife." Which may be a sign that something weird's going on here, and you wonder what, when did Laban hatch his plan in the midst of those seven years? But they have the the wedding, uh, the feast, and it's then that we see Laban's true colors. And as we see Laban's true colors, Jacob sees his own true colors. The whole situation becomes a mirror; it becomes that black and white photo, like that officer held up and says, "Is this you?" And Jacob says, I haven't seen that guy for seven years, but that's that's me. So the feast is thrown this big celebration of the joining of these two lives. And it would have ended with Jacob and his new wife entering into their tent to consummate the marriage. It would have been at the end of the feast. It would have been dark. Imagine a time with just lanterns and and candles. So it's a dark place. Uh, It would not. It wouldn't be beyond the imagination to say that Jacob may have been mildly intoxicated at this point. He's probably drank a lot. His bride would have worn a veil. And so, uh, like his father, Jacob is blind in his own tent. And he's met by someone who comes into the tent and her identity is obscured. She's been disguised by her father. Sounds similar, doesn't it? But it's not until the morning that Jacob wakes up and he finds that it's not Rachel in his tent. But it's Leah. He has been tricked. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, he says, Laban, you scoundrel. That's how we read it at our house. (laughs) He's been tricked seven years of laboring. And he's not given the wife that he worked for. The one that he probably thought about. He kept, you know, in those hot days, I'm doing this for Rachel and that's not who's in his tent. The one who had made those years feel like days is not there. He probably trembled with anger, just like his father did. He may have wept loudly, just like Esau did. Whatever he did, he, he went and found Laban for sure. Um, we're not told about what Leah and Rachel thought about this whole thing. Can you imagine them, though? Were they part of this plan? I mean, Rachel was loved by this man. I'm sure there was some sort of relationship between them after seven years. and But she's kept from marrying him. And poor Leah... She is, is used just sort of as this pawn, um, at least ex, to some extent she's forced to deceive this man, to have him look at her in disappointment and rage. Can you imagine what that would be, to wake up to that? We'll think more about them a little bit next week. But back to Jacob, he leaves this tent, he goes finds his father-in-law, probably grabs him by the shirt collar and says, what have you done? And what's Laban's response? Very simple. Firstborn, Jacob. Firstborn, we don't do that in our country. Got to marry the firstborn first. And so again, the laws of the firstborn come back and they haunt Jacob once more. But this time, he's not the brother that's doing the deceiving, is he? Rather, his mother's brother has deceived him and played the trick. The heel grabber has had his own heel grabbed. The deceiver has been deceived. In chapter 27, Jacob disguised by his mother, deceived his blind father in his own tent to steal the blessing of the firstborn. And here, Leah, disguised by her father, helped deceive Jacob in the blindness of his tent because of Laban's commitment to the rights of the firstborn. How amazing. It's poetic justice at its best. Jacob learns what Job observed, Job 4.8, All I have seen, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, reap the same. Which is what Paul says in Galatians 6 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The New Living Translation says it like this Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Seven years later, you think Jacob probably thought he had gotten off scot free with this whole thing. Yeah. He's moving on. He's not going to face any consequences. He assumed that this message that God had given him of blessing meant that there would be no pain, no judgment, no discipline that would enter his life. Don't we think that way sometimes? I think as much as we might say we don't believe in the prosperity gospel, in our theology, in practice, sometimes we do. We say, if I'm a Christian, then my life is one that's filled with with blessing. But... If we are truly God's children, then he's not only going to bless us, but as Ken read in Hebrews, what? He's going to discipline us too. That's how we know we are his children. He leads us to Wells. He leads us to Rachel's. And he also leads us to Laban's. How does God discipline us? Let me give you two ways that I see from this text. One would be he will allow us to feel the pain our sin can cause. He will allow us to feel the pain that our sin can cause. Jacob I think maybe for the first time felt what Esau felt. For the first time he probably felt what his father felt that day that he betrayed him. I don't know if he connected the dots right away, but I I think that this scene was probably in his mind when he's coming back into the land. Why is he so scared to meet Esau? Because he knew what that felt like. And he knew how angry Esau would be. He knew how he felt about Laban. And now he's got to meet Esau. It changed him. You know, it happens in our lives. Sometimes we don't know the pain that our lies cause until someone lies to us. We don't know the sting of betrayal until we are betrayed. We don't feel the, the fear that our anger can cause until someone is angry with us. And all of that pain in that, as God lets us sow what we, or reap what we have sowed, he, God is whispering, he's saying, you have caused pain like this to others. Your sin has hurt others, just as you are feeling so hurt even now. That's a kindness. And the Spirit should allow us to see that. So God's discipline lets us feel the pain that our sin causes. And then secondly, as God disciplines us, He will allow us to face the consequences our sins can bring. He will allow us to face the consequences our sins can bring. The, the situation is resolved, sort of, Laban gives Rachel to Jacob also, says complete the week with Leah and then I'll give you Rachel and then you commit to work with me for another seven years. It's not seven years before Rachel becomes a part of this, but it's it's just a week later and then Rachel enters in. There are hints of the strife that this is going to cause. You notice both female servants are mentioned in the passage, Zilpah and then later Bilhah. They're both going to become pawns in this terrible game. They're going to build, bear children for Jacob. And there's this foreshadowing of how nasty this is all going to get. That that statement that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, how is that not going to cause problems? And again, just going back to what it was before, it foreshadows the way that Jacob, who had fought with his brother, will now have a life and a marriage that's marked by a conflict between two sisters. That's going to be his Road to hoe for the rest of his life. And then the war between him and Laban, that's far from over. we got a lot more that's going to happen with that. It's just all the pain that comes in. Jacob may have thought that he had gotten away from his sins, but the blessing of God and even the forgiveness of God doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin. It doesn't remove the, the discipline that our Father is going to bring into our lives. This is seen throughout Scripture, isn't it? The clearest example is David. So David is forgiven of adultery and murder. But what happens? His son dies. Samson. Samson eventually repents and he's given his strength back. But what does he use his final ounce of strength to do? He brings the building down on himself and enacts the justice of God. One of the great stories is in Esther where Haman is hung on the gallows that he had made for Mordecai. That's the definition of poetic justice. Or Daniel's accuser's. Remember, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den, and all the lion's mouths are shut, and then his accusers are thrown in the lion's den, and they are devoured. It happens. What about us, though? Do we believe that we will face consequences for our sins? That we're going to reap what we sow, even as God's children? Or do we think that we're different somehow? Do we think that that our lack of zeal, that our laziness in following Christ is not going to have some sort of effect on our lives? That when we face trials and temptations, we're going to be okay? Do we think that the way that we treat others, the way that we talk behind their backs, or the way that we speak rudely, or the way that we treat people with contempt, do we think that's not going to bring brokenness into our relationships, that somehow we're not going to reap what we're sowing in that? Do we think we can look at explicit material on our computer and not have it affect us? Do you think that there's not going to be consequences in your relationship or in your your marriage or in your walk with Christ, do we think that the things that we listen to in our ears and the images that we view with our eyes, that we're not going to reap consequences for that? Just because we're God's children and he blesses us, we will reap what we sow. Do we think that our addictions to some substance that we say is under control, do we think that that's not going to harm others in the long run? The way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our time and our energy, is that not going to have any consequence in our lives? Will there be no consequences when we lie, when we steal, when we gossip? Jacob, this story tells us that it might be seven hours, it might be seven days, it might be seven months, it might be seven years, it might be 56 years, it might be 70 years, but we are deceived if we think we can sow sin and never reap the consequences of it, even if we are God's blessed children. One of the places this shows up is in parenting, which is scary as all get out to me as a parent. We see the consequences of our sins in our children. Our children highlight our weaknesses. They struggle with the same things that we do. And as we grow, we see the the sins that, that we have committed mark them. Now, our children are responsible for their own actions, surely. And so I don't want to put guilt unnecessarily on people. But there is no denying that our children are marked by both the ways that we succeed as parents and the ways that we fail as parents. It's true for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's, it's true for us. And we just, we see that. We recognize it. It's hard. You know, Wednesday was not a good day for me. It was a bad day. For various reasons. And in the the midst of it, what what was bad is I felt like God was exposing my weakness. He was exposing all of my failures. And my first reaction was extremely godly, godly. I got really angry about it. And I wanted to see myself as the victim of someone else's sin or some circumstance. I wanted to blame someone or someone else. And it was actually in reflecting on this passage that that God helped me to see that, in fact, he was disciplining me, that his heart for me was to see my weakness and to see my failure as consequences of my weakness and failure, as consequence of my sin, to see that I'm going to reap what I sow, and that my response shouldn't be anger, but rather it should be repentance, and it should be resolved to walk in the grace of God, to walk in greater holiness, to, to change. By God's grace. That's why God disciplines us, isn't it? According to Hebrews 12.11, not to anger us or to cause us to blame shift. What does he say in Hebrews 12.11? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? That's no-brainer. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, when God causes us to reap what we have sown, when he disciplines us in that way, when we feel the pain that we have caused others, when we face the consequences of our action, it's often part of his discipline. And for the child of God, if we are true children of God, then we, we want godliness and we want God to be glorified, then that discipline is good. When God reveals our sin, we trust that he's doing it for our good. He's shaping us more into his his image He can bless us and discipline us simultaneously. In fact, discipline can be a blessing, a blessing that causes us to repent and to walk in His ways. Now, the ultimate, what's the ultimate reaping of the consequences of our sin? It's eternal punishment. Our sin undealt with, our rebellion against God ultimately reaps separation from God and punishment forever. And if you're here and you're not a child of God through faith in Christ, then the sins that that you commit are, in fact, storing up wrath, storing up consequences for you, not only in this life, but for all time. But there's hope in Christ. In, In Jesus, God takes the greatest pain. He takes the ultimate consequences for our sins upon himself. God is a God of justice. And his justice will not be mocked. That's what we read. But he's also a God that's full of grace and mercy. And in his death, this is what Jesus does in his death. He reaps what we have sown. Jesus never sowed disobedience. He never sowed sin. We have. And Jesus reaps the consequences for our sin. He is forsaken. He is deserted. He is beaten. He's punished. He's killed for my sin and for your sin. And because of that work... In Christ, we can reap all of the rewards that God would give us. We can reap forgiveness. We can reap holiness. We can reap a new resurrected body one day because Jesus has been resurrected. And if we are God's children by faith, then we're going to walk through life. And we're going to know the blessing of God. If we're going to know the way that he leads us. We're going to know the way that he encourages us. We're going to see all of his good gifts in our lives. And if we're children of God, we're also at the same time going to know his discipline. It's going to open our eyes to see the pain that we cause others. He's going to open our eyes and let us face some of the consequences for the ways that we rebel against him. And by faith, all of these things, the blessings of God and the discipline of God, all of it can be used in our lives for our good and for the glory of God, let's take a moment of silence and just pray that God would do that in us. And then I'll I'll, I'll pray I'll close this in prayer, and we'll have a benediction. But let's just take a moment of silence now. Father, what a what a good Father you are. You are so kind to us. You bless us in countless ways. You bless us in ways that we don't even know. Ways that we won't see until we are with you for all eternity. The ways that you have protected us. The ways that you have guided us. But thank you for that. And God, in this moment of clarity, we thank you for the discipline that you bring into our lives. The way that you help us to feel the pain of our own sin. To reap the consequences of it. Lord, I pray by your grace that we would, as your children, we would learn, we would turn, we would follow after you. We would accept the discipline that you give us as for our good. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know your discipline, because they're not your children, if they're just reaping natural consequences, and, and one day we'll reap Eternal punishment, Lord, I pray that they would come to know you as a Father who will bless and love and guide and discipline them. Lord, may they come to know that Jesus has reaped all of the consequences for our sin. Everything that we have sown in disobedience and in rebellion, Jesus has paid for that. And you offer us forgiveness in Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you would save those who are wandering from you. Make them your children. And for we who are children, God, use us for your glory. I ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.